I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Sakshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm Nitansha Bansal and today we're talking about the moon. More specifically, we're going to debate the merits of India joining the Artemis Accords, which are an American-backed series of agreements relating to the moon. Before I move on, I would like to inform you that Takshashila's 12-week graduate certificate programs in policy are now open for admission. The last date to apply is 28th of August 2021. For more details, please visit takshashila.org.in slash courses. I now welcome my colleagues Aditya Ramanathan and Aditya Pari, who will help us to understand the Artemis Accords, their significance in the ongoing discussions in the domain of space, and what they have in store for India. Hello Aditya and hello Aditya. Hi Natansha, great to be here. Hi Natansha. So let's go to the bedrock first. Um, Aditya Ramanathan, can you please tell our listeners what Artemis Accords actually are and how they came into existence? Sure. Uh, the Artemis Accords are, are essentially an outgrowth of something called the Artemis Program. And the Artemis Program is this ambitious uh, American idea of basically returning to the moon, uh, doing human space flight once again. And specifically, the goals that they have are to get the first woman and the next man to the surface of the moon by the year 2024, which is quite an ambitious goal by itself. And the accords are really a series of rules of the road, or, or if you will, roads of the rocket, uh, pick your pun, that states that want to participate in this Artemis uh, program are expected to adhere to. So if you want to be part of this American lunar exploration program, you have to uh, sign on to the Artemis Accords. Now, why uh, lunar exploration? Well, partly it's just because of the moon itself. The moon is interesting, but also the moon is potentially the gateway to greater interplanetary travel, travel to the asteroid belts and so on. So there, there, are, there is a very practical aspect to lunar exploration or setting up facilities on the moon and so on. The other thing, interesting thing about the Artemis Accords is that it isn't some normal bilateral agreement. This isn't like something that you sign up at the WTO. Instead, it's actually a series of bilateral agreements. There are presently 12 countries that have signed on to this. Uh, this you know, include countries like Australia, Japan, Brazil, Canada, the UK, uh, South Korea, New Zealand, most recently UAE, uh, and also Ukraine. Uh, and all of these countries have basically gone and signed bilateral agreements with the United States. So it is not something that's multilateral. Uh, the other interesting thing about the Artemis Accords is that it lays out these 10 major principles. Now, most of these principles are fairly straightforward. They're, you know, uh, things like peaceful use of outer space. So the Artemis Accords also, the other thing that's interesting about them is that they lay down these principles of l- lunar governance, which are fairly consonant with existing international law. Nothing really controversial there, nothing that stands out, except for some particular clauses. One is on protecting heritage. Now, on the face of it, this doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, So what the Americans are really talking about there when they talk about protecting heritage is protecting their own historic landing sites on the moons, uh, especially 
from the Apollo 11 mission, you know, the what remains in the sea of tranquility, including an American flag planted there. And so the Americans, you know, want to protect these heritage sites. Uh, the other aspect of this is the provision for what Americans call safety zones. So what that means is if you start setting up some activity on the moon, in the interests of deconfliction, as they would put it, you have a right to not allow anybody else to enter that zone. Uh, now, both of these things on the face of it seem sensible, but uh, they, there could be other potential problems that we'll get to uh, from, from both these provisions in the Artemis Accords. Now, I, you know, while the Artemis Accords are very much a series of bilateral agreements, they don't really build up on existing international space law. You know, 1967, you had uh, the Outer Space Treaty, which is which has 110 state parties, and the Outer Space Treaty is widely adhered to and understood. There's also a Moon Treaty of 1979, which came into effect in 1984, which, you know, has only about 18 signatories uh, and, you know, which has only 18 state parties and it doesn't have much of a following. In fact, none of the countries that presently conduct human spaceflight, namely the US, Russia and China, are parties to the Moon Treaty. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily build on these but at the same time, we've been in a stasis in terms of space law. Uh, no real progress has been made since then. In fact, no real progress has been made since 1967, to be honest. And uh, the Artemis Accords could be said to have broken that deadlock in a way by trying an unusual solution to move ahead and to establish some basic rules of lunar governance. Right, that's actually true. I think you've covered a major chunk of how Artemis Accords came into being and their relevance right now. But what there's something that really uh, is noticeable right now that you know there are two obvious absentees in the Artemis Accords, China and Russia. And they've been quite vocal about their discomfort at the proposal of what they call a US-centric accords. So I'll uh, move on to Aditya Parikh. Uh, Aditya Bari, do you see that any alternatives to these Artemis Accords, specifically looking at China and Russia? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, so China and Russia uh, have gone and uh, created a structure of their own called ILRS. Uh, so it's a competing uh, kind of a project to the Artemis program and not really the Artemis Accords. But nevertheless, it's emerging as this uh, competing block for uh, uh, lunar exploration. Perhaps soon enough, uh, uh, it would evolve into some sort of a, a program and block that would uh, look into deep space exploration as well. So for the moment, ILRS stands for uh, International Lunar Research Station. So it's supposed to be a, a laboratory on the surface of the moon, which is uh, going to be an alternative for, uh, lunar exploration program for countries that are not really amenable to the US or rather have more interest uh, in the world than, uh, than what the US can uh, assuage, I'd say. So for the moment, uh, the two main participants of uh, this block are just... Uh, Russia and China, who happen to be the founding members, and they signed an MOU uh, earlier this year, I think, and uh, they've invited prospects from other countries uh, who would like to join this program with them. But from what I can see, this uh, ILRS project is uh, a lot about you know flexibility and uh, uh, strategic autonomy. And I'm not just uh, really extrapolating this to India only, uh, which as we've seen, uh, India has been 
geopolitically pretty much non-aligned, at least on the surface, uh, through the Cold War, uh, post-war, and uh, to this day, I guess. But when you look at the contemporary order in which uh, Russia and China have been conducting their affairs with each other, they've always uh, preferred to flexibility to be autonomous at any given point. Even if you look at the recently published joint statement by uh, Xi Jinping and President uh, Vladimir Putin, you'd find that they talk about how their alliance is really uh, not the political security uh, alliance of the past uh, as as they existed in the Cold War. So the main point here is that whoever so is not amenable to the US can find an alternative in ILRS and uh, Russia and China. Look at lunar exploration from a point of view which I don't think the rest of the world which is amenable to the US looks at, which is to say... Uh, part of the uh, grander strategy, uh, part of uh, a bigger whole. Right. And actually, now that you're talking about this alternative, I also realize that there, you know, there are at least three or four alternatives to lunar governance. Because uh, as much as uh, our existing treaties talk about peaceful and cooperative and, you know, deny the moon treaty denies the moon mining and space mining. Then also we see the countries and the spacefaring nations actually looking or taking that forward. So I would also like to point out, you know, there's this uh, model implementation agreement for the moon treaty. It's it's a Canadian uh, program, which was, uh, it supports all private activity on moon. And it also gives the private property rights, just like we have them on, on the earth. And there's another, there's this International Lunar Network, which is basically a common set of scientific standards and communicate, uh, communicative mechanisms. And what it its objective is to establish a robotic, robotic set of geophysical uh, monitoring stations at the surface of the moon. Now, there's third, which is Interloon, and it's established in the format of the Intelsat. And this, uh, the scholars believe that uh, this alternative to uh, lunar governance will avoid the problem of no, non-space actors trying to dictate to the space pioneers, uh, why? because it allows the profit-making and similarly to the um, model implementation agreement, this also establishes private property rights. So I think we already see in the lunar governance that there is a demand for establishing private property rights and that the nations are looking to do the space mining and uh, there is definitely a challenge to the moon treaty but maybe we could talk about it in the second half so uh before we move on to to explore the threats and opportunities presented by the artemis accords to india let's take a brief break and i request the listeners to stay tuned Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Before we took a break, we tried to understand how Artemis Accords came into being, their current status and alternatives to the uh, Artemis Accords. We'll now focus on the big question, the question that what do the Artemis Accords offer to India? Actually, uh, this is a question I want to ask you, Nitansha, because uh, India is a signatory to all the major space treaties, right? Outer Space Treaty, Moon Treaty, Liability Convention, uh, Registration and Convention and Rescue Agreement, all of these. Uh, so what does India actually gain by getting into the Artemis Accords? 
Sure. Thank you, Aditya, because I really wanted to answer this question. It's good that you put it to me. So it's true that, you know, India has already been very active with respect to being a signatory as well as ratifying these uh, treaties and conventions. But I still feel that there's a lacuna in the lunar governance and there is still a very translucent space uh, when we look at the outer space as a domain. Now, I feel that ISRO has been has a global image of being capable of achieving its goal at a very low cost or, you know, at cost effective and in a time efficient manner, which is something that nobody expected out of India. So I feel that if India were to join these accords, we ISRO as an agency will be able to exhibit those uh, those technologies. And of course, there's always the um, possibility of ensuring commercial certainty. We know that uh, India has opened its doors to private sector players and we are willing to commit, the government's willing to commit to including the private sector and, uh, you know, bringing them as a partner and not uh, as the third person in the space zone. So I feel if if India were to join these Artemis Accords, it will be uh, beneficial for that uh, aspect. And of course, there are a lot of uh, reports which talk about how the first trillionaire of the uh, Earth could actually be on the moon, and uh, this definitely will be helpful in becoming in making space resources economical. And you know, the private sector will feel that there is a support from the government, and they will be willing to invest. And I think this is something that's the need of the hour. The third thing I feel is that the spacefaring nations do not have still lack a lot of trust in each other. There is a lot of opaqueness in the um, activities done at the space or specifically in the moon and there is no there is a need to build that trust between these nations so i feel if there is a mechanism which uh, brings everybody at the same table and is actually effective then definitely that is something that can be uh, done away with and we'll probably see a more peaceful and a cooperative uh, space exploration and uh, definitely space mining uh, operations taking place Right. So you're also saying that ultimately the Artemis Accords are not the solution, right? So they're at best a sort of bridge uh, before you get to some sort of more durable multilateral arrangement. Right. I do feel that, you know, the Artemis Accords have broken the existing deadlock, which was which existed in the multilateral negotiations. But there is a lot still to be done in this aspect right now. But definitely this is a good start to, uh, you know, talking about and changing the narrative of the space and the lunar governance, which is necessary. Now, looking at the reality, we have to bring this into it. So I feel that definitely this is this is uh, breaking the existing deadlock. So definitely an important uh, Accord. So uh, now, see, I think now that from our discussion, we, it looks like we are all in favor of India jumping on the bandwagon and signing the accords. But I'm sure there are some weaknesses and, you know, threats to India becoming a signatory. So um, Aditya Ramanathan and Aditya Parikh, maybe in that order, what do you think are, you know, some points of caution that India must be mindful of if it were to join these accords? Sure. Uh, so... You've already touched upon this to some extent, Nithansha, when you talked about, uh, you know, the debate over private ownership of any part of the moon or the moon's resources. And I talked about those two provisions in the Artemis Accords. One is on heritage and the other, more importantly, on safety zones. Let's consider safety zones. Now, by the American interpretation of the Outer Space Treaty, no state can own a portion of the moon, right? No state can claim this part of the moon is mine. Now, the big loophole in that, of course, is that 
that does not necessarily stop a private enterprise from staking claim to a portion of the moon. Now, the Artemis Accords don't allow that, but what they do allow is the creation of safety zones. So if a private American space company were to hypothetically in the future go prospecting in a part of the moon, uh, strike whatever mineral resource that they're looking for, they can essentially create a safety zone around that area uh, to, you know, in the name of deconfliction. And in effect, that becomes the property, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law that essentially becomes the property of that particular company uh, in, in as a matter of fact. And that is something that essentially the Artemis Accords, I think, quite explicitly open up the possibility to do. So quite unsurprisingly, the Artemis Accords are very much tailored towards American interests and are primarily meant to serve American interests and not necessarily those of other countries. So, you know, this really comes to the heart of lunar governance, where there are, I think, two fundamental questions. One is going by the Outer Space Treaty, do resources belong to all humankind? Or, you know, does it mean that if you possess something, it's yours, you know, miners, keepers, if you will. And and the other legal question that we're touching upon here is how long can you squat? You know, what's uh, when does your lease end? What's your term limit? You know, once you land somewhere and say, well, I'm creating a safety zone here, is there a ticking clock that says, well, on so-and-so date, uh, you have to leave? And none of this is actually clear. There are also, you know, while it opens up the space for lunar mining, exploitation of the moon's resources, of the regolith, what it doesn't do, of course, naturally, is to set up the rules uh, for how you're going to do this, right? So even in, for example, international waters in the Earth's oceans, uh, you know, you can go fishing there, but but it's heavily regulated. There are all sorts of rules in different places. So, uh, you know, that is something that we still have to put in place in the moon. And that has to put be put in place uh, before mining activity starts. You know, now mining activity, this might seem very far-fetched. You know, when is this going to happen? It may be decades from now. But the rules that we set now can influence the rules that are in place, you know, even 100 years from now. I mean, I just think back to Hugo Grot, the Dutch uh, legal theorist who came up with a lot of the basic principles of maritime law in the 17th century. And, you know, it's not hard to see the influence of his thinking from the 17th century, even in a lot of maritime law that we have today, for example, with UNCLOS 3. So, you know, what you do now uh, is going to have ripple effects uh, for the future. So we really need to be forward thinking. We need to think about some of the crucial problems that are created by all of this. And uh, any engagement that India has with the Artemis Accords, even if it agrees to sign on to it, it really needs to, we really need to go beyond the Artemis Accords to multilateral agreements as well as uh, more specific agreements that govern the use of the moon. Right. That actually makes a lot of sense. And while you're saying, I also realize that uh, my major concern with this is the bilateral nature. And I think you touched it in the beginning itself, how these are not multilateral, but you know, certainly bilateral. And uh, Russia and China have been very vocal about you know the dominance of the hegemony of US, which is coming out in this uh, in the form of these Artemis Accords. So uh, Aditya Parik, I will turn to you that what do you think is going to be the implication if India were to join these accords and uh, how can it impact this rela- it's, uh, India's relationship with Russia and China both? 
Well, I don't really see an exclusivity clause in the Artemis Accords or ILRS for that matter. So, well, I am of the opinion that India should join both really because there's nothing stopping us. And uh, it's not really uh, an approach which, uh, which can be gouged as fence setting, but rather participation in both and uh, making a balance for ourselves, which is amenable to our own national interest and in rather supporting any of the blocks. So we've more or less nullified the advantage uh, to either block by our participation and gained advantages for uh, ourselves on uh, both sides. But, you know, there's always this ever-present danger of uh, things that we don't anticipate. So there's always a low but present chance of uh, India's intellectual property being stolen in the ILRS framework because of uh, China's reputation, I guess, in industrial and uh, high-tech espionage. But to, uh, with Artemis Accords uh, and the reputation of the US and uh, its uh, allies, mostly uh, most of the most of its Western allies, I don't really see much of a, a threat to uh, India's IP, really. So uh, I think uh, there's also some sort of, a, you know, problem with the Wolf Amendment. So uh, since I'm advocating that to, we also join ILRS, in conjunction with the Artemis Accords, uh, there is a low chance that to, uh, the Wolf Amendment would be something that the US later extrapolates and says that whosoever cooperates with China on anything. Uh, so ba- uh, almost a decade back, 2011, the US Congress banned any cooperation in space with China for, the, uh, for NASA, for US. But coming to today, I think there's a low but present chance that... To, this can be extrapolated to any country that is also collaborating uh, with China, which if we join ILRS would be uh, also us. And at that point, the US can uh, see this as a low-key threat that their technology, their IP would be uh, stolen by the Chinese indirectly. So, yeah, I think those are uh, the major threats. Right. And I think this also makes sense looking at India's history of um not siding or you know not bringing an exclusivity even when the entire world feels that uh, certain blocks are exclusive to each other but india has definitely found a way to keep everybody happy somehow and i think there's another threat which i feel is that you know there is non adherence or withdrawal by the signatories in a lot of these space related treaties so maybe if that doesn't happen we'll see a better scenario. So I'm just going to put you both of you in a situation which like I want you to think in the future. And I want you to say like, you know, 50 years or 75 years. And we're assuming that Artemis Accords have got a good number of signatories and they are in full swing. So how do you think these accords will change the domain of space like we know them, like we know it right now? So I'll start with Aditya Ramanathan here. Sure. So let me just give you a facetious uh, uh, scenario. All right. So the American landing site in the Sea of Tranquility, the Apollo 11 mission is in the future a museum and you have a nice souvenir shop selling fridge magnets of uh, the lunar module or something. Uh, now, who does that museum belong to? Uh, who does that uh, souvenir shop belong to? Do they get to stay there forever? Uh, these are not questions that we have any rules for at the moment. And uh, until that becomes clear, essentially the Artemis Accords are a finders keepers agreement. It's uh, 
an accord uh, designed for the powerful, primarily for the United States. But uh, its principles could also be used by other uh, states that are at the forefront of uh, lunar missions, specifically at the present, or at least Russia and China. Now, uh, Aditya Parikh, for example, argued that, uh, you know, there's no exclusivity clause. That's true, at least at the moment, but we don't know what that's going to look like 50 or 75 years down the line. In fact, the deputy head of uh, China's uh, space agency last month had indicated that the ILRS program would have its own uh, set of rules that they would apparently come out with at the end of this year, 2021. So again, we don't really know what even the near future holds uh, in terms of uh, lunar governance. I, to my mind, the wor- you know going beyond uh, souvenir shops and so on, uh, the worst case scenario of uh, you know fifty or a hundred years from now is that you do have these remotely piloted craft doing some important mining on the moon, which you know is necessary for you know water for helping to build facilities for a lunar gateway in the future. But uh, these are not subject to sensible regulations. Uh, you know, at best, there is some sort of self-regulation, which is not necessarily adhered to. You have a problem of lunar dust, of junk on the moon, uh, you know, because of the low lunar gravity junk on on the moon uh, that is unsecured can actually be quite dangerous. So uh, there are all these sort of uh, issues that could turn the moon into a sort of uh, garbage dump, basically. Right. Uh, Aditya Pari, do you also have a vision? For this. Uh, well, to be quite honest, uh, when I uh, recommend that we also join the ILRS program is uh, uh, basically to salvage our uh, uh, cooperation with Russia or rather have a better prospect of advancing it. So Russia has a key edge in something, uh, some things that uh, is going to be uh, important for uh, deep space exploration, to be quite honest. And I only see ILRS as some sort of a stepping stone. Because, you know, uh, as Aditya spoke uh, about the uh, rules of the road or uh, rules of the rocket being formalized as uh, things move ahead uh, in the future, in the coming decades. So I think if uh, the ILRS block ever uh, gets to set those rules, because we just don't know who's going to be the hegemonic power and uh, who's just going to call the shots in the world. So if the ILRS block uh, really has that uh, wherewithal, uh, it would be nice to have a seat and uh, it would be nice to have a traditional allies here in that sense. So I, uh, you know, I've been uh, getting a lot of mileage out of this idea about wedge strategies. So I think that India's presence in the ILRS block also uh, has the added benefit that you can always exploit a wedge whenever it becomes apparent between uh, Russia and China. And at that moment, whatever they diverge on, uh, we uh, support Russia and uh, try to move it out of uh, out of uh, China's orbit. Uh, excuse the pun. So, and I also uh, see that to uh, for space exploration. Uh, sorry for conflating my thoughts a bit. So, for uh, deep space exploration, I think Russia has a edge in space tugs. at the moment but this uh, might change in the future i also acknowledge that so uh, they also have uh, a pretty good proven uh, launch capability in their uh, Soyuz spacecrafts and uh, i think uh, although india uh, has uh, pretty good launch capabilities on its own but it never hurts to diversify and uh, if it's any evidence uh, the us has been 
buying uh, uh, Soyuz seats for a long time. Uh, they've been sending payloads on board uh, Soyuz spacecrafts uh, as well. So I think it's uh, it's really wise for us to have a say uh, in ILRS as well. Perfect. I think we've been able to uh, provide a holistic view to our listeners about what is in store for India if it decides to sign the Artemis Accords. And I'm sure we're all waiting eagerly to see the final decision. So uh, thank you, Aditya and Aditya. It's been a pleasure talking with the two of you. And before we call it a day, I would just like to recommend Dr. Ram Jhaku's work on Artemis Accords and Lunar Governance to our space enthusiastic listeners. Thank you, Aditya and Aditya. Call it a day. Thanks, Natasha. Thanks, Natasha. Thank you so much. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.